Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Dan Redfield, the creator of Alaska Photo Ventures, a television series that explores Alaska through photography. Although Dan grew up in the outdoors, he didn't start documenting it for himself until about three years ago, after he decided that this was how he could scrapbook his adventures and family memories. As he puts it, instead of opening up a book, we're turning on either the TV or a computer and watching it. Okay, time to give the Crude Company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber. Seward Brewing Company. The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau. Derek Adolph. Blue and Gold Board Shop. Sharon Liska. Carly Mortensen. And Alaska Surf Adventure. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep these conversations going. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to Dan Redfield. Dan has a new show called Adventure for Ava, where he helps families with special needs create memories in the Alaskan outdoors. He got the idea after his daughter Ava was diagnosed with Tay-Sachs, a fatal genetic disorder. After all the hospital visits and time spent at home caring for Ava, Dan realized that his most important memories were those spent outdoors with his family. So with the help of his fiancée Kristen, he decided to use the culmination of his professional and personal experience to help families in similar situations. I want to thank Dan for his willingness to talk about what he and Kristen are going through with Ava. I consider it a privilege to have been allowed into that sacred place where family, love, and grief currently exist. So here he is, Dan Redfield. This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more, then you talk. Go to work! Uh, Dan Redfield, just here, flapping his gums. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Well, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So, I feel like we've been trying to coordinate this podcast for a while now, and today we're finally able to make it happen. Yeah, I'm excited. So how you been, man? Uh, good, man. I'm always busy. Um, 5 a.m. to 10 p.m. most days, just uh, trying to get stuff done. And, uh, you know, I'm one of my biggest and uh, one of my best attributes is also one of my worst attributes is uh, I just like to, to just get stuff done and I'll start stuff and just uh, it's really made me become very busy lately. <laughs> Well, it's good to be busy, right? Yeah, it keeps me keeps me out of trouble. You know, when I was in college, a professor, a journalism professor of mine was talking to the class and he said that a past student of his was asked a question in the interview process whether or not she was a morning person or a night owl, right? And she said, I'm a morning person. 
and she got the job based on that question. So I guess going off of that, you would you would get the job because you're waking up at 5 a.m. Yeah, and I've never – I've always been more night owl-ish. Um, but just out of necessity, trying to get stuff done, you know, you got to do what you got to do. And sometimes that means waking up early. So I don't like it, but that's why, uh, they invented coffee. So, <laughs> and how much coffee do you usually drink? I usually cook up about hot half a pot. When I do wake up at five, my, uh, fiance is a coffee roaster. So there's never a shortage of delicious coffee in the house. So what's your go-to coffee? Uh, Goldie's coffee. And is that dark roast or? Uh, they got a few different ones, but their house is, uh, it's kind of a medium roast. Okay. Yeah. You know, I feel pretty dumb just realizing this. I've only been a coffee drinker for maybe two years now, mm -hmm. but the more medium roasts, right? They have more caffeine in them. Yeah, that I don't know 100%. Oh, I, I learned that recently oh, okay. because I think that being a novice, I just assume the more bitter and hard something is to drink, mm -hmm. the more of the thing that you want in it, right? Alcohol, mm -hmm. like hard alcohol has got more alcohol. Sure. For the most part, like more concentrated. Yeah. So you would think the same thing applies to coffee, but no, it doesn't. Yeah. And I'm still learning. I'm a trainee in progress. Trainee in progress. She's getting me learned up. Okay. So let's get into it. Sounds good. Warm-up questions done. Yeah. <laughs> done and done. <laughs> Checked off. So adventuring is kind of your thing. You like to experience the outdoors and document it. As a kid, were you pretty outdoorsy? Uh, yeah, pretty outdoorsy. Um, I didn't have much of an influence as far as like the filmmaking and the creating aspect. But yeah, my mom, uh, camping, you know, we always did that. And then with my dad, it was fishing. So yeah, outdoors has always kind of been there. When did you get into documenting it? Uh, so I started filmmaking when I was about 22. Um, and the idea of creating, starting with nothing and being able to create something was super attractive. Uh, and then I started kind of documenting my adventures about three years ago. So initially, were you documenting it for yourself and for family and friends? Yeah. So most of it was just documenting it for myself. You know, I was already kind of doing these adventures. I had already taken an interest in photography and filmmaking at that point, you know, and still is as a full-time job. So I have that there and, and I enjoy doing that. Um, so yeah, at the time it was mostly just for myself and, you know, maybe something to look back on every once in a while, you know, you, you get in this like mode of just like making and creating and pushing stuff out there, but it's nice to like, you know, maybe grab a bottle of wine or something one night and hang out with your friends and just like watch some old videos and like take you back down memory lane. We'll do that at hybrid color. Sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll just like, we just make stuff and push stuff out. And then, you know, you open up an old video and, you're like, oh man, that was fun. We'll remember that other one. And then we watched that and, you know, three hours later, you know, <laughs> we've watched all the, the, all the oldies, but uh, yeah. it's cool to be able to like have something to show for your time here, I guess. Am I incorrect in thinking that one of the things that you guys recently watched was uh, Winter Project because of the anniversary? Yeah. So Winter Project was a snow machine documentary that we made five years ago and it just popped up in my, uh, my Facebook memory feed as five years ago today. And I was like, wow, holy moly. That's pretty crazy. That was pretty crazy. Yeah. What's it like looking at a kind of an all consuming project like that and realizing that it was 
as long ago as five years. Yeah, it kind of kind of blows our mind. Like you think about the entire process, like we built this audience by making a couple of snow machine films, made this audience. Then we had the idea, okay, well, let's make, you know, a feature film out of this. And Kyle, the director kind of spearheaded that whole program. And then Travis being one of the producers on board um, was Travis Smith Travis, and Kyle. Yeah. Kyle Aaron Bureau and Travis okay. Smith um, kind of spearheaded the whole project. And, uh, they ended, you know, they started with an idea of raising a $140,000, just cashing in on the audience that they had created. And, uh, you know, I, I was a producer on the project and, uh, we were able to raise 156 grand to basically fund this project. And we put in a lot of sweat equity into it too, but you think about, you know, we, we were able to raise that amount of money, get that amount of support. And then also be able to create a film that we wanted to, we mm -hmm. weren't, you know, we weren't answering to sponsors. We didn't have to fulfill, you know, anything we were making the film, how we wanted to make it. And because we had this knowledge of watching all these other snow machine films and seeing what had been done and then combining our work as filmmakers and kind of putting our own little twist on it. Um, I think it made for a pretty unique flick and, uh, yeah, it's still just crazy that that was five years ago. It doesn't seem like that long ago. Going back to kind of earlier what I was saying, when you first got into uh, documenting your adventures, right? When did you start doing it with the intention of sharing it with the world? I think it was from the very beginning. Because when I started, you know, Facebook, you know, that's it, it, means it was only three years ago. So it was a pretty popular program. It was a pretty popular platform. So I think from the very beginning, I was interested in sharing that stuff with other people. Um, the first couple of episodes have, you know, my fiance and my daughter Ava in it. So it's kind of cool to like integrate them into it a little bit. Um, and just kind of, so it was more for me, it was for me, but it was also for, you know, some of my family members that don't live here, you know, that still want, you know, to kind of check in and see what we're doing. So yeah, it was as much for them as it was for, for us, you know, and being a filmmaker, you know, there's the, uh, you know, of course I'm the, the dad making home videos and stuff like that. But of course, being a filmmaker helps to kind of, you know, put my own little spin on it. So, you know, I'm making home videos for not only myself and my family, um, for us to share, but then for my family out of state to be able to, to share too. That's a very scrapbook way of going about doing it. Yeah. You know, and I think that that makes it a little bit more personal. Mm -hmm. Like you were talking about earlier with, uh, uh, winter project, you know, you're putting your own blood, sweat, and tears into it. And I think that that probably puts your own stamp on it, you know, rather than kind of just pushing something out for, for a client or something like that. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, even today, like, you know, we can go back and look at one of the first couple of episodes where Ava's in it and she's on our backpack at six months old. And yeah. So instead of opening up a book, you know, we're, we're turning on either the TV or a computer and, and watching it and you get a little bit more of that experience. You get, you know, some of the, it just kind of puts you there back in that place. You know, the first episode we went to independence mine. So like it was a, an October day, so it was kind of cold, the leaves were turning and it just kind of puts you right back in there. Like we, you know, Ava's our first child. So we're still kind of like winging it, you know, she's six months old. We're still trying to do what we want to do, you know, but at the same time care for her needs and everything. So it's like, you know, a scrapbook can bring that memory back, but a video kind of brings those emotions back. Mm -hmm. It's kind of in, an interesting medium. And you've been mentioning episodes. You're talking about your show, Photo Ventures, correct? Yeah. 
So I watched the first episode of Alaska Photo Ventures on Amazon Prime this morning. And in the beginning of that episode, you said that you love learning about the history of the places you go and the people you meet there. Um, I'm sure you have some some stories about people and places. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a, there's quite a few stories. I'm just trying to filter out, you know, the ones that are going to be going to be the best. I think, uh, in, in my adventures, you know, some of the, some of the crazier adventures, uh, taking a jet ski right up to Blackstone Glacier. It's actually the second episode of season two. Um, I mean, that one was pretty wild. Uh, we got blessed with a, you know, a, a beautiful day. Um, Let's see, my friend Aaron Bartell and I, we took a, a plane out to Inner Lake George at the base of uh, Colony Glacier. And I got a status report from somebody who had just went out there like a couple of days before that uh, the ice was, you know, good enough to skate on. So I brought my ice skates and threw my camera and drone on my backpack and I skated a mile up towards Colony Glacier and got as close as I felt comfortable. The glacier started talking to me a little bit and warning me kind of. You, you've went close enough. So <laughs> yeah. then I pop the drone out and fly it around and get some footage. And then I ice skate back. And actually one of the funniest things about that is there was a group of uh, people that had landed where we were and they started walking and it was about a mile towards the glacier. And I had put my drone on follow me mode. So as they were ahead of me, I came skating by and they said, hi. And, and I said, hi to them. And as I passed them, then here comes this little sound of the drone <laughs> following me. And, and I never looked back to got to see their reaction, but I always wonder what that was. They're just like, Hey, how's it going? They're like, yeah, you know, what's up, got the skates. And then the drone behind me following me. They're like, what the, it's <laughs> <laughs> being trailed by a drone. Yeah. So futuristic. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. That shot is pretty epic. I, uh, I feel like every time I see that shot of you. Uh, it's a long shot too, right? Like you're mm -hmm. like the camera, at least the one that I'm thinking of is pretty far away and you could see uh, you're the skater, correct? Yeah. Skating kind of past the camera uh, and then like into this like this void, this huge expanse of ice yeah. that is obviously not an ice skating rink. Not technically, no. Yeah. <laughs> there were a few cracks you got to you know, jump over to make sure that uh, you don't take a nasty spill, but... Yeah, hopefully. I mean, everything everything worked out, so I didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you're here. <laughs> so as far as interesting characters. Oh, yeah, never a shortage of those. So uh, Lee Blau, he was on my uh, jet skiing adventure. He's, uh, you know, a little bit more reserved, a little bit more quiet, but every once in a while, he's got a good one-liner that kind of peeks through. And uh, so he's a, he's a fun He's a funny guy. I like hanging out with him. Uh, Matt Sanders was our uh, our guy that we had doing the downhill mountain biking. And if you know Matt Sanders, you know just what a character he is. Um, a lot of the people that before I go on these episodes, you know, I'll do like a pre-interview and just, you know, meet, you know, meet the people, be able to talk to them a little bit. And within five minutes of my pre-interview with Matt Sanders, I was like, oh, yeah, no, this is the guy for sure. And his episode, I mean, I, I like to let their character kind of come through. Um, and I think his episode really did a good job of that. You know, you get to see just kind of, you know, he's this tatted up veteran that uh, just doesn't really care about, a, you know, about a lot of things, including his own personal safety when mm -hmm. it comes to downhill mountain biking. Um, but he just doesn't have that. I don't give a 
you know, attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I like, I like showing off that personality for sure. You know, I, I guess I come from the perspective of, uh, the same perspective where you meet these characters and you're so happy to be able to share that person with the rest of the world because Mm. these, these characters that live in Alaska, I feel like get exploited sometimes when they, when they get found by these reality television shows Mm -hmm. and they paint them in this, um, I don't know, like not necessarily a negative light, but people are laughing at them, not with them. You know what I mean? And they might have their own agenda as far as where they want them to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And I think one of the best parts and, or I think one of the parts that I really strive for in the show is just being honest. You know, this isn't scripted, you know, and, and maybe to a fault, you know, when we go out, when I go out, I'll do a certain amount of, you know, research beforehand. What are some of the things that I'm going to expect to run into? You know, maybe what's some of the history behind that? Why did those things come to be? But at the same time, there's a lot of room for interpretation and serendipity. So like if stuff happens, you just have to be ready to capture that. And I think Mm. that's probably the best part of it. And something that I get a lot of comments from is your show's just honest, like, and I'm just honest. You know, if I, you know, in one of my episodes, you know, I was trying to set the stage for what we were about to do. And I just couldn't put it into words. And Kyle was there kind of help coaching me through the interview. And he's like, just talk to me, like, just tell me, tell me what it was like. And I was like, okay, well, to be honest, I really didn't have much of a clue what we were going to go do, but we were just going to go do it and just figure it out. And it was actually the best take. And that was the one that I ended up using in, in the film. Like, you know, I'll just be honest. Like, you know, I'm not here trying to like paint a picture that isn't reality. You know, we're going to go out, we're going to try to get some stuff, but you know, things might evolve into something else. And that's just the way it is. For sure. You know, I, um, I was trying to shoot this video a while back. This is maybe like two years ago, a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And my wife was filming me and, you know, I had these questions for her to ask me because I wanted to be in front of the camera or it was necessary for me to be in front of the camera because it was this promotional thing for crude, uh, for this thing that I was trying to do at the time. And I was trying to say specific things. And then once I watched them afterwards, I'm like, that doesn't sound like me. Yeah. <laughs> sound natural, you know? And uh, and then so what she had me do before we started recording, because we, we did a few days of recording, she's like, gives me, I forget which Harry Potter book. She's like, you need to sit down before we do any of this stuff, read the first chapter out loud, right? Like, so get your voice right. Make sure you get every word correct. You don't stumble, you don't slur. And just get comfortable talking. And I think that that's something, I think she just knows me. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think she heard that from somewhere else or knew that technique existed. Um, And maybe it doesn't. But it was probably one of the most important things, at least as far as um, me trying to convey what I'm actually trying to say. Mm -hmm. And I guess all this to ask you, like, do you ever run into people who I guess are less natural versus people who I guess are more genuine that you can tell that, 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 that genuineness is just like exuding. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, are you asking like, uh, you know, you have some people that are a little bit more reserved and you have to like try to get them. You know, I think, I think what I'm asking is, so I keep, I keep coming back to reality television. Right. And, okay. and a lot of those people, 
on those shows are very aware that they're on a show mm -hmm. and they're very aware that they're acting, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're trying to do and say certain things exactly how they want to be said or how they're picturing them yeah. self-saying it in their head, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that that can be a block because reality television has like permeated American culture, mm -hmm. right? And so you want to be like, you know, as well-spoken as your favorite, mm -hmm. you know, reality television stuff. Yeah. But it's something that takes practice if you want to be that person, which is more of like a, uh, more similar to like a politician, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than like a normal person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I guess, uh, as a, as an example, yeah, some, some people, when you're interviewing them, um, yeah, they expect you or they, they're, they're going to tell you kind of what you want to hear mm -hmm. and what should be said, um, instead of just being authentic. So, um, yeah, a lot of my job is as a filmmaker is to one kind of pull out information from people who are a little bit more reserved, get them comfortable with me and just get them talking. And then two, kind of censor them to a certain degree. Like they're, they know I'm a filmmaker. They're wanting to get, you know, some good juicy content for me, but I don't, I don't want that, you know, that polished, you know, I, I just want genuine. Like for instance, we had a film project where we had uh, Nick Hansen in the studio, the American Ninja Warrior. Okay, and uh, he had come in and he was pitching um, as pitching towards a project that he's uh, sponsored by, and he was you know saying things that the company you know kind of says externally, you know how they want to be perceived by the public, and and he was trying to kind of wrap that up, but put his own little twist on it, and he was really struggling it with it for a while, and. And I just had to say, Nick, just forget all the buzzwords, forget the things that you think that other people are expecting from you and just talk to me as a person. What does this mean to you and how does it affect you? Mm -hmm. And the very next take nailed it. We called cut and that was it. But it was like he was struggled for like five minutes trying to get this one line out of him when it was like, I don't want you to say any of that. Just talk to me like a person. What does it mean to you? And he just nailed it. And then we were done. He was that, like, Ooh, that was easy. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Just being yourself. Yeah. Just being yourself. And I think, yeah, like, especially nowadays, you know, you, you were talking about, we were talking about like the different podcasts and how they can try to be something that they're not just by being over the top. And I think we are, I agree with you. We're at kind of a, a, a change, a changeover where like people just want to see people just being real. Mm hmm. I don't want to see, you know, the scripted Alaskan, I don't, you know, Alaskan TV show where they're just like have a producer behind the scenes, you know, kind of fabricating stuff like, you know, just, just be real, just be honest. And I think that's what, um, that's what I, I get a lot of comments on that. They say Alaska photo ventures is just, it's honest. And that's what I like about it. I think that we're getting sick of phoniness, you know, and, and by we, I mean, kind of like the universal, like we, like everybody, we're getting the people that are watching television, that are people listening to radio. You mentioned uh, to me on the phone yesterday that you appreciate how I'm not like a, a DJ on the radio, you know, where, where you have like the sirens, like, wow, 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 you know, welcome to 98 point whatever. Right. And um, I think that, that we might be getting to a point where we're done with those characters. Yeah. Yeah. We are at this place where like, I think a lot of people are just kind of getting fed up with that. Um, and that's one of the things that I really like about, about what you're doing is it is more of a conversation. You know, we're just talking, you're not expecting anything out of me. You just want the honest truth and you're not trying to be something that, you know, you're not, you're not trying to fit a certain mold. You're doing what you're doing because you like to do it and you're sticking to your format. And I think that that's, 
what you're doing with uh, Alaska Photo Ventures. Yeah. So traditionally, you know, photography TV shows don't really have a super long run. Um, and they, they might not be, you know, as profitable as other shows are maybe other shows that are more scripted and more, um, I guess, yeah, scripted. Um, and there's, there, there's probably a reason for it, but I don't, I'm not super interested in that. I'm not, you know, super motivated by the money aspect. I'm not super motivated by sponsorship. You know, I do what I do because I love it and I would be doing it regardless. So going off of that. I always think it's important to look at the motives behind creative work because I think there is a big distinction between good creative work and bad creative work. Good creative work starts from a genuine desire to create something, whereas bad creative work starts from the desire to make money. Mm -hmm. Your show, Alaska Photo Ventures, you've personally funded that so far mm -hmm. out of a genuine desire to tell those stories, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Alaska photo ventures has been sponsored by me, made by me, edited by me, which just so you know, and you are probably aware of this listening to yourself and editing yourself, you know, is, is kind of weird. And especially from, <laughs> from my standpoint, usually working behind the camera to transitioning in front of the camera and then having to edit yourself after that. Uh, I'm just like, I'm of course my own worst critic. I'm like, why do you look like that? Why do you talk like that? Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, yeah, it's, it's something that I would be doing. I would be doing anyway. Um, and I do it because I love to do it. I do it because I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons, you know, I, um, my grandfather, for instance, um, you know, he just recently died and he had, uh, Alzheimer's and he didn't remember me in the last couple of years of his life and didn't remember the fact that his, uh, wife, my grandma of, over 50 years had passed away. So his mind was completely, it was completely gone. And, and that kind of got me thinking about things like, you know, at some point that might happen to me too, but through my adventures, through my filmmaking, through the photography, you know, I have something to prove for my time here. I have proof that, you know, I existed, I was a filmmaker. Um, and every once in a while, you know, I did some cool stuff. I interviewed my dad on the podcast and it was easily the most difficult podcast for me to get. You know, I, I showed up at his house probably twice before he actually would let me, you know, interview him. And um, I remember driving away after I did the podcast and, you know, thinking I thought it went really well. But at the same time, I have I have that conversation for posterity, right? I have that for me in the future, for uh, my future kids, for uh, my brother and or my brothers and my sister, you know, so they can listen to that and have this little time capsule of our dad, mm -hmm. you know, when we're old. Um, and, you know, kind of getting back to the scrapbook analogy. I mean, I, I love that, you know, the magazine crude that that um, the physical magazine when I was doing that, that was always in my head, you know, scrapbook, right? Because you're going from one article to a next to the next and one could be a a magazine type article and then the next thing is a, a photo essay and then the next thing is like like some comedy piece so it's like kind of this adventure going through the entire thing but it's also this like time capsule mm -hmm. of a culture in a certain period of time yeah and, and within that kind of format you could 
you know, go back and look at like, oh, like what was I into at the time? What was important to me? Exactly. Um, you know, and yeah, you get to kind of relive, relive those memories. And, and even with photo ventures, you know, I can go back to last season or, you know, even earlier episodes and, and kind of see where I was as a photographer and how I would do things differently now, uh, which is great because it shows evolution, but it also kind of shows where I was like within my um, knowledge base of a photographer, you know, nowadays I might be like, well, I might approach that a little bit differently, but you know, it's just all part of the process. You know, in that way, it's a lot like a, uh, or in the way that we're talking about, it's a lot like a diary or a journal, mm -hmm. you know, looking back and seeing where you were in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah, my adventures basically are, you know, a visual scrapbook or a visual diary of what I'm doing at the time. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I can't read my own handwriting, so it's a perfect medium for me because <laughs> I'd go back and be like, what the heck is a Kadula Sava? <laughs> well, with the video, you know, that's something that I, you know, I can do better than writing. So it's my, it's my visual form of a diary. Have you gotten yourself into any situations where you're like, oh shit, like this is, this is happening? Oh, <sighs> let's see. So earlier this year, we took mini jet boats out to Spencer Glacier and uh, we were hanging out pretty close to the glacier, you know, not, not super close. You know, we understood, you know, st stay a little bit back from it. Um, but this thing, it was a, looked like an ice bridge and it looked like literally any second this thing was going to fall. And we come to find out that the next day it actually did collapse. And you probably saw the Facebook video from the pack rafter that was out there. Okay. Um, it, I mean, it hit the water and, you know, almost flipped him over and, and almost took him out. Um, so that, you know, we were a day, a day late for that scenario. Um, but as far as like anything super, like, no, there hasn't been any, anything crazy. Um, I think as, as being an adventurer, you know, you have to take calculated risks. You have to understand where the line is and where, where you're going to say enough's enough. Um, we were filming an episode, uh, earlier this year with my friend, Carrie Tasker. And, uh, we had drove out to, uh, Eureka took snow machines out 20 miles to, to get to this remote glacier. And we made it to mile 19 and a half. We could see the glacier. It was just right ahead of us. But we had a heavy snow machine, a big bear cat that was loaded up. We got uh, stuck. We started getting stuck a lot. And we were buried in just like this just wet slush that was just like a bottomless pit. And the sun was starting to fall. And we started getting kind of these you know, variables that were kind of stacked against us. You know, snows are the... Uh, the sun's falling. There's nobody else out there. It's just us. You know, we don't have extra food, extra water, you know, and we're, we're real close to it. We're real close to our destination, but what happens if we get there and we can't get out of there, mm -hmm. you know? So basically long story short, we drove in 19 and a half miles filmed for an entire episode on their way out there. It took us, you know, eight, nine hours to do so and got there. And at mile 19 and a half, we had to make the decision to turn around and go back. And yeah, I mean, things could have gotten bad very quickly. There's a lot of things that would have had to go right for us to make, get in there, get our shots and turn around and return home safely. 
But, you know, every one of us, we all have kids. We all have a spouse. We all have, you know, responsibilities that we need to tend to. And it was at that point where, you know, this just isn't worth it. And you have to understand where that line is and where you're going to draw it. And just understanding those risks and, yeah, I guess, understanding those risks and when to draw the line. How often do you guys find yourself drawing that line? Typically, it's not... We don't have to draw that line very often, um, mostly because you figure out, you know, what those variables are going to be and how to minimize those, you know, situations and, and kind of stay away from them. You know, typically, you know, I go, I love glaciers uh, and people sometimes make fun of me for that because a lot of my episodes are about glaciers, <laughs> but I just love glaciers so much. They're not going to be here forever. So it's kind of, you know feel like it's kind of up to me to, you know, do some documenting of mm -hmm. them while they're still here. And, you know, glaciers are, uh, they can be very gentle and quiet, but at the same time they can be, you know, ruthless and devastating. And, um, you just have to really treat them with a tremendous amount of respect when it comes to, you know, the face of the glaciers understand that if you're in a position where you might be too close you know, when something does happen, you know, there's no undo buttons out there. There's no command Z. You can't just like be like, oh, this sucks. Can I just like go back 10 minutes where I was in a safe position? You know, mm -hmm. that stuff doesn't exist. So you have to keep yourself. You just have to be aware of those of those risks. And also, you know, icebergs, icebergs love to flip. So you have to like you have to just understand what their capabilities are and just be cautious of that. So usually I don't find myself in in too crazy a situations and mostly because I'd like to think that I'm, you know, try to stay ahead of those problems before they arise. So you said you are an iceberg guy. Love icebergs. Do you have any iceberg knowledge that you want to hit me with? Oh, or man. glacier knowledge, <clears throat> glacier knowledge. Okay. So, um, well, I guess one of the more interesting ones, when I talk about getting to learn about the people and the places, uh, when we did our episode with, um, my friend Aaron, we flew out to colony glacier and, um, I couldn't fly my drone in a certain area because there was, um, uh, TFR, a temporary flight restriction. And that basically, um, I didn't really understand it at the time, but I knew I just couldn't fly in that certain area. And, and when I got home, I kind of Googled it and did some more research on colony glacier and found out that, uh, I think it was in the fifties. There was a uh, a plane, a Globe Master, that went down, crashed on Colony Glacier, and it killed a number of people. I want to say it was like ten people, um, but typically there will be temporary flight restrictions while there's helicopters out there still looking for any uh, leftover debris and stuff like that. They're but, still looking for it. Yeah. And apparently there was some debris that had, so it had crashed up on the glacier and over the years it had slid down quite a ways, uh, down the glacier. So that, that glacier is still moving and, and it, and it carries whatever, whatever's trapped in there with it. And are there bodies in that thing or uh, that? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So you just mentioned kind of a no fly zone for drones. There are lots of, of rules about where you can and can't fly drones here in Alaska, isn't there? Yes, there are, especially in the Anchorage area. <laughs> I think that might be something that a lot of people don't know. I don't know much about it personally. Yeah. 
So I'm uh, a part 107 commercial drone operator. Um, and so when I went to go take my test to become that certified drone operator, yeah, you got to, you got to understand all those rules. You have to be able to, you know, read stationary maps. And there's a lot of, a lot of knowledge that you have to understand before you get that certification. And to be honest, I think it would be great if a lot more people did that that process and, and went through that training protocol to really understand how to be a safe drone operator. Cause nowadays, you, you know, you can just buy a drone and pop it up in the air. And, um, that doesn't mean that you should, and you should know, you know, what you should be doing and what you should not be doing. And, you know, it, it kind of, you know, kind of irks me and, and, and I'm sure a few other part 107 certified operators, when you see, you know, a picture, a drone shot, you know, within Anchorage or just outside of Anchorage and, you know, the state parks and places that, you know, you, you know, you can't fly, you know, mm -hmm. and us commercial operators, we're not going to jeopardize, jeopardize that by popping it up in the air. But you see a lot of just hobbyists that are, that are either doing that or they're flying above 400 feet or they're blind, they're flying at night and some of the other like big, like no-nos. Um, but you know, they, they post it up on social media and, you know, it gets shared all over the place. And it's like, just cause you can, doesn't mean you should, and you should know the rules. So above 400 feet, you said, right? Yeah. And you can't go any higher than 400 feet. Not legally. Why is that? Uh, probably to stay out, stay out of uh, other, other traffic, uh, like airplanes and, and helicopters and stuff like that. Sure. I wonder, I mean, I don't know if you would know this, uh, but it seems like it was kind of a free for all. In the beginning, you know, anybody could fly a drone. Like, here's a drone. You get a drone. You get a drone. Um, yeah, the Oprah Winfrey effect was definitely in play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then they did institute it. I wonder why. I mean, was there a moment where a plane was flying and it, it was hitting drones? Or did a helicopter hit some drones? Or, you know, was there an, a, a specific incident that happened yeah. that was like, this is the, you know. Not that I'm aware of, but I know when I had to take my test, uh, the FAA kind of, I don't know if they really have a full understanding of what we need to be testing these people on. Because for me to pass the test, um, you know, I had to be able to read a stationary map and I had to understand how fixed wing aircrafts operate, which I'm like, this doesn't really apply to the drone category. So I think the FAA was just like, here, here's like some general stuff, just know that stuff. And so I actually got to learn quite a bit about fixed wing aircraft, which is pretty <laughs> interesting. <laughs> that's, that's really weird. You know, I, it seems like they're just kind of, uh, throwing everything at it and see what sticks. They're just winging it. Yeah, they're just winging it, dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so we we talked about Alaska Photo Ventures, but you have another show that you're working on now called Adventure for Ava. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that project and how it came about? Yeah. So Adventure for Ava is kind of a, a series that I'm putting together. Um, that basically takes out families with special needs and just helps them create memories. So, uh, the idea came from our daughter, Ava was diagnosed with a fatal genetic disorder at 16 months. And from there on out, um, you know, we've had a pretty hard time of, you know, staying at home and caring for her and then going to the hospital back and forth between the hospital and home. And, um, she requires round the clock care, you know, whether it's, 
you know, her medications or just tending to her. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into taking care of her every single day. Uh, she feeds through a J tube. It's kind of like a G tube, except it goes into her small intestines. Uh, there's a lot of like, you know, she requires uh, medication to be administered multiple times throughout the day. Um, she can't really, she has a hard time swallowing her own saliva. So we have to go in there with the suction machine and clear that stuff out and make sure that she can breathe. And so there's just a lot that goes into it. And of course she's medically fragile. So the past, you know, over a year, you know, we've spent a lot of time at the house, um, because she's medically fragile, taking her out places, you know, she might get sick and for her getting sick, you know, it could just be really bad for her. And, um, at this point she's blind and paralyzed. Um, so, you know, trying to carry around, you know, she's 32 pounds, so she can't really move. So, you know, it's just, it's hard, uh, logistically to get out. And, uh, so kind of going through that whole process, you know, when, when something kind of bad like that happens in your life, like, you know, you might be the same way, you know, you start to kind of think about, you know, why, why is this, you know, and, and if you subscribe to the idea that everything happens for a reason, then you start to go into some deeper thought into like, why? Mm-hmm. Why, why is this happening? And how can I shift my perspective in a way that, you know, keeps my own mental and spiritual sanity, you know? So that got me thinking about, well, you know, we've had to spend so much time inside and at the hospital, and that's not where your memory should be made. Our memories, the best memories that we have are the ones outside hiking, doing something fun, doing something adventurous. Uh, that's how Kristen and I really connected. We both love the outdoors and, and we wanted to be able to share that with Ava. And Kristen is your spouse. Yeah. Kristen is my fiance. Fiance. Yeah. So our best memories have been those outside. Um, and for a lot of other families with special needs, you know, access to the outdoors, access to adventure, you know, it might not be something that they're physically capable of doing without, you know, some extra help. Um, so kind of my role as, so being a filmmaker and then now being a dad, uh, with that understanding kind of sparked the idea of, you know, how can I, how can I leverage the knowledge that I have, um, to kind of help some of those families. So the idea of taking a family with special needs out, filming their adventure, filming and telling their, a little bit of their backstory of how, you know, life is for them and and the history behind that. Um, So like the idea of me being able to scrapbook my adventures and scrapbook, you know, my visual diary, so to speak, Um, I've been able to do that because of my experience in filmmaking and photography, but not every family has that opportunity to either capture those moments or document them and put them into a format that they can share with other people. This is my story and, and this is what we did. And these are the memories that we made. So it's kind of a unique position. And and I think some of those questions that I answered, you know, why is this happening to me? I think it's because, you know, I'm in a, a position to, to help those people. You said earlier that you that you subscribe to the outlook that everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Have there been any moments with these other families that you're taking out with uh, special needs kids where you're just like, it's confirming, you know? Yeah, I feel like uh, I had a little deja vu moment. And I don't know if it's the same for you, but like those deja vu moments kind of help confirm that I'm on the right track. Like this is where I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so I had, I had asked the family, if you could do an adventure 
any adventure in any adventure you want to do in one day, what would it be? And the mom comes back and she says, I want to, we want to go see the bears at Lake Clark. So first I was like, oh no, <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> but then, you know, after I had spent some time cold calling aviation companies, trying to make that thing happen and I was unsuccessful, then I posted out to our Alaska Photo Ventures Facebook page and there's 6,000 followers there and the majority of them are Alaskans and the majority of them just want to help. So after I put out an APB, within two hours, I had an aviation company, Bluga Air out of Homer. They agreed to fly the six-person family plus me out to Lake Clark. And then within the day, you know, we had Mount Readout Lodge uh, donate a guide and then their boat. So it was kind of once we got there and we were filming, there was a little deja vu moment where I felt like this is kind of where I'm supposed to be. Like I've leveraged my fan base that I've built. I've leveraged my skills as a filmmaker and with the motivation and the understanding that your best memory should be made outside with your family, it kind of all kind of connected and, and yeah, there was a little bit of a moment there. You know, a lot of people can go their entire life without understanding their purpose in life. And I think through something like this, you know, this may, may or may not be, you know, my calling or my purpose, but I think it's close to where I need to be. And I think if you can understand your purpose and you discover that there's no greater gift, mm -hmm. it just, it makes sense. Everything just, it aligns. It makes sense. You know, I talked to a sponsor the other day and they couldn't say no to it because everything just aligned. They're like, you know, <laughs> it's such an easy ask, you know, everything just aligns. It just makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So we got our first sponsor, yay. Yeah, <laughs> and what's your first sponsor? BC Excavating. Okay, okay. Um, so earlier you were telling me that uh, the best times of your life have been spent outside with your family. Do you have any memories that you wanna share? Yeah, I think um, there is one that sticks out uh, as far as it being Kristen, myself and Ava, and it was a 4th of July and you know, everyone went hiking up flat top parking lot was packed. So we decided to go a different route and we went uh, up O'Malley. So there's little O'Malley and then big O'Malley. And if you're not hundred percent aware, you know, if you're in Anchorage and you look out towards the mountains, there's one peak that's just a little bit bigger than everyone, everyone else. And it's a sharper peak and that's O'Malley. Um, and it, it's quite a walk to get up there. Um, and we made it about halfway up there. Um, but you know, I had Ava on my back um, and we made it up, you know, up little O'Malley and then about halfway up to O'Malley peak. And there was nobody out there. It was just us, you know, we were taking pictures and, you know, we got to just hang out and the, it wasn't windy. Usually at that elevation, it, it can be kind of windy, but there was no wind. It was sunny. It was just like, again, everything kind of like aligned and it was just perfect. And we sat up there for, you know, an hour or so and just kind of hung out and, you know, took bunch of pictures and this was before Ava kind of got her condition. So she was, you know, she could still see, she could still, you know, react. She was still, you know, Ava, mm -hmm. she could smile and everything. So that's definitely like the, uh, the one adventure that kind of stands out and it wasn't anything, you know, crazy. It was just us, you know, hiking up a mountain, but again, some families with special needs might not have that opportunity. So it was something that kind of, I look back on and you know, it was important to us at the time, you know, how do you, 
how do you help other families kind of get to that point? This genetic disorder mm-hmm. that, that Ava has is Tay-Sachs. Yeah. I know you're not a doctor, but to your knowledge, what is Tay-Sachs? Mm-hmm. So Tay-Sachs is a fatal genetic disorder uh, and it targets uh, kind of the brain and nervous cells. Um, and there's three different kind of types. There's infantile, juvenile, and then late onset. So you can have this disease and depending on whichever one you have, it might hit you later on in life. Um, but hers is infantile. So most of the time you'll discover it between age six month and a one year. And that's kind of where we discovered that there were some problems was right around one year. Um, she wasn't hitting her developmental milestones. Her gross motor skills weren't kind of up to where they should be. And being first time parents, you know, we didn't understand, you know, we're just, we think maybe, well, she's just like kind of a slow learner. And, you know, after, you know, a lot of testing, um, it wasn't until an optometrist had discovered a telltale sign, which is cherry red spots within her eye. Um, and that basically, uh, kind of confirmed that it, that it was Tay-Sachs. So, uh, in infantile Tay-Sachs, uh, the kids will usually, it'll be pretty obvious uh, right around that one year mark, you know, what's going on. And from there, it's basically a complete regression, um, as far as like motor function goes, um, her visuals. Uh, so she can't see, she's basically paralyzed for the most part. Um, and then, it's just a complete regression until, you know, between two and, and five. Do they know what causes this? It's a, it's a lack of a certain enzyme. And outside of that, I, <laughs> yeah, I don't, outside of that, I don't know. But it's, Tay-Sachs is basically a lack of a certain enzyme within the DNA chain. When did you um, come up with that idea for adventure for Ava? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about a year ago. We were in physical therapy for Ava. And at the time we didn't quite understand, you know, that she had the diagnosis of Tay-Sachs at the time we had kind of a blanket, uh, diagnosis of cerebral palsy. So we were trying to work with a physical therapist to try to get her motor skills up. And the physical therapist D over at Providence, she's very outdoorsy and, you know, her and I kind of connected and we would talk as we were working with Ava and, uh, we were just talking about some of our adventures that we had gone on and, and there was probably a conversation in there where, you know, she had asked, you know, what'd you guys do this week? And, you know, nothing. We pretty much stayed at home, you know, and then maybe the next time we saw her, you know, what did you guys do anything this week? And it was like, no, we, you know, we pretty much just stayed at home and, and tended for Ava. Um, so I think it was kind of in that, some of those conversations that, you know, it's like, you know, we in and out of the hospital, we're sitting at home, you know, we don't have much to show for it. And we're not doing the, we're not making those memories that are important. We're making memories at a physical therapist's office and at home. That's not the way it should be. Mm-hmm. So kind of started from there. Um, and then, you know, trying to flesh out this idea, you know, I understand that there's going to be a lot of liabilities. There's going to be a lot of like back end work on like vetting families and trying to make this thing happen. So there's just been a lot of a lot of work on the back end trying to make this a viable and a sustainable nonprofit initiative. And how many families have reached out? Currently we have one family. Um 
I've had a lot of other families reach out, um, but at this point, you know, try to put all of the ducks in a row so that, you know, if this does become a pretty popular thing that we have things in place and the infrastructure set to accommodate those, accommodate those families and to just make it sustainable. You know, we've done one so far, I'd like to do four a year. And if this project keeps, you know, if it takes off, you know, just keep doing more and more and more. What does that process look like um, from deciding that you're going to go with that family, you're going to take that family out on an adventure, um, and then actually taking them out on that adventure? Mm -hmm. Well, so we're still kind of in the early stages of the development for the program. So some of that stuff is, you know, kind of shifting a little bit and, you know, there's a, just a lot of things that kind of factor into it. You know, logistically speaking, it would be nice to have, you know, a group of charters or people that can facilitate these adventures kind of signed up. And then we can just pair our families with one of those um, instead of making it, you know, what do you want to do? And we'll just go figure it out because I could tell you for this adventure, you know, there's just a lot of logistics that mm -hmm. went into like, you know, taking a family of six onto an airplane and flying them over to Lake Clark. Like there's just a lot of logistics. There's a lot of airplanes in Alaska, but there's very few airplanes that can accommodate a six person family. So it's just a lot of, a lot of stuff that goes into it. So four episodes a year. And how long are these episodes? I imagine they'll probably be about five to seven minutes. And this will be on Amazon prime. I don't know exactly where it'll play. Uh, it, it might be on Amazon prime. Yeah. At this point, I, I really don't know. Okay. And it'll at least make its rounds on social media. Perfect world scenario with the show. Where do you see it here in the near future? And then I guess, yeah, the near future. Yeah. So ideally it would be nice to service the families within our communities. Um, but also I see value in bringing up people from the lower 48 that maybe have never even seen Alaska. Um, and just be able to, you know, make that experience more impactful. You know, Alaskans, you know, we're a certain breed and a lot of people, you know, go and see glaciers and go and see all that stuff. And you kind of get a little jaded because of it. Um, so you really got to up the ante to really, you know, make something excitable for some of these families, like going to go see, you know, bears out at Lake Clark. Um, so it would be nice to find a good mix of servicing the people in our communities uh, and making a difference here locally, but then also, you know, every once in a while stepping outside that and bringing up maybe a family from the lower 48 and, and even bringing in somebody from our group, our, our Tay-Sachs group. There's a Tay-Sachs group. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So the, uh, NTSAD is the national Tay-Sachs and allied diseases group. And, um, they've been super helpful kind of helping, uh, guide us through this journey of this unknown because Tay-Sachs is such a rare disease. You know, there's less than 20,000 cases a year in the U S and, and it's just a very, it's a rare disease. So when you reach out, you know, even our doctors and neurologists here, you know, they're like, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I've never treated this before and I've been practicing for 20 years. Mm -hmm. So NTSAD has helped us kind of navigate those, those waters. If you don't mind me asking. I sure don't. What was it like when you guys got the diagnosis and the doctor said something like that in all of my years of being a doctor, I have never seen this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So before we got the diagnosis, Kristen was Googling things, things that could possibly be, you know, what, what was causing Ava's, you know, those developmental hiccups. And, um, I chose to stay ignorant, um, cause I just didn't want to fill my head with, you know, some of those possible things. Um, but Kristen was aware that Tay-Sachs could have been, uh, one of the things that was wrong. And we had done, uh, some testing and, and at the time our neurologist, uh, was coming in the room to deliver his results. And, and I just remember he opened the door and I, I looked at his face and I could see his eyes were already red and a little puffy. And it was like, at that moment, I was just like, you know, I just knew it wasn't going to be good. Um, yeah. And, and he gave us the news and, um, you know, we, uh, all kind of got together in the middle of his room and, and we just kind of hugged, you know, he understood it and, you know, he had to explain it to us, which couldn't have been easy for him. But I mean, yeah, it's just devastating. Yeah. I know that Travis Smith at Hybrid Color started a GoFundMe to help out with the expenses. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to give you the opportunity to, to share that here, because mm -hmm. if anybody's listening to this, um, any help is, is appreciated. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Travis Smith and Kyle and bureau kind of started the, the GoFundMe. Um, Kyle's one of my good friends and, and he, you know, put together the video. Um, and we've got just a tremendous amount of support from our local community and, and just people like people we haven't heard from in, in a while, you know, just reached out, um, just a lot of people doing whatever they could. Um, and at this point I kind of hesitate to ask for anybody to do anything more because we got so much support. Um, trailer craft, a local business put up $10,000. Uh, our friend, Stephen Cornfield, um, musician for Thera, mm -hmm. um, they held a benefits concert and, and raised more money there. And so we're, we're at a pretty good place. Um, you know, as far as that goes. So I'd hate to like, you know, ask for any more because everybody's already been so generous. Okay. Um, I mean, we can, we can just, uh, just say thank you to all those people. Yeah. I mean, this, I can't imagine a more difficult situation, you know, and I, and I really appreciate you sharing that with me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's a situation that, that really sucks. There's no other way to put it. Um, but it definitely could be a lot worse if we didn't have just the amount of support that we've had. The people that have supported, you know, Kristen and myself either, you know, openly or through, you know, private messages or private talks. Um, there's just a lot of, uh, a lot of good people out there that have really stepped up and went above and beyond to, you know, just show that they care and let us know that, you know, they're thinking about us and whatever they can do, you know, don't hesitate. And, um, it's been, it's been overwhelming to see the amount of support. Mm -hmm. So many people had helped us out in our time of need that it was kind of motivating factor to pay it forward or pay it back to other people. 
um, and other families within our communities. And the type of work that you're doing with, uh, with the show, I think that, that you guys are the perfect people to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You think, you know, you think about, you know, why, why am I here? Why do I do what I do? Why have I gone through the things in my family? You know, why have we had to go through these things? And, you know, I think it's all about perspective, you know, and perspective is, is such a beautiful thing because no matter what comes into your life and what gets taken away, there's one thing that can't be taken away and it's your perspective. So that perspective helps focus my energy on, you know, why am I here? Why is this happening? And how can I shape this through my perspective into something that not only helps me, but helps other people? Yeah, that's perfect. That's great. I mean, what did I say? I kind of blacked out there for a second. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that, that, that does it for my questions, man. Uh, Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah. Um, in addition to just the amazing amount of support that we've received from everybody else, um, one of the biggest players too behind the scenes has been Kristen, my fiance. You know, when, when I'm, when I'm weak, she's strong. When she's weak, I'm strong. And, um, there's not a lot of people that I could see going through something like this with, um, but I'm glad it's her and she's been a complete rock star through this. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And I want to thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on here and it's good to be able to talk with you. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>